John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 50, verses 12 through 16. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. Burkett notes, Here we have recorded the carriage of the multitude towards our Savior when he came near the city of Jerusalem. They take palms in their hands and go forth to meet him, and cast their garments on the ground before him to ride upon. Yea, they not only disrobe their backs, but expend their breath in joyful acclamation and loud hosannas, wishing all manner of prosperity to their meek but mighty king. In this prince-like yet poor and despicable pomp doth our Savior enter the famous city of Jerusalem. Lord, how far was thou from affecting worldly greatness and grandeur? Thou despisest that glory which our hearts fondly admire. Yet because Christ was a king, he would be proclaimed such, and have his kingdom confessed and applauded and blessed. Yet that it might appear that his kingdom was not of this world, he abandons all worldly magnificence. Verses 17 through 22. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Burkett notes, observe here, one, how the multitude at Jerusalem came forth to meet Christ when he was making his public entry into the city, hearing the fame of his miracles. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. Observe, too, how amongst others who came forth to meet our Savior, certain Greeks, or Gentile proselytes, who came up to worship in the outward court of the temple, apply themselves to Philip, that he would help them to a sight of Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. It is probable that this desire to see Christ in these persons proceeded from curiosity only. But if he did produce true faith in them, we may hence infer that a spiritual sight of Christ by the discerning eye of a believer's faith is the most glorious and consequently the most desirable sight in the world. And so must needs be, for it is a soul-ravishing, a soul-satisfying, soul-transforming, and a soul-saving sight. This sight of Christ, by faith, will constrain a soul highly to admire and greatly condemn him. It will incline a soul to choose him and cleave unto him, and will set a soul a-longing for the full fruition and final enjoyment of him. Luke 2.29 Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Now let thy servant depart. Observe lastly, how the envious Pharisees were galled and cut to the heart to see such a multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, crowding out of the city to meet Jesus in his triumphal entrance into the city. The Pharisees said, 
Behold, the world has gone after him. Learn hence that in the day of Christ's greatest solemnity and triumph, there will not be wanting some persons of such a cankered disposition that they will neither rejoice themselves, nor can they endure that others should. This was the case of the wicked Pharisees here. Verses 23 through 25. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how our blessed Savior entertains his followers with a discourse concerning his approaching death and suffering. The hour is coming that the Son of Man shall be glorified. Observe, too, how he arms his disciples against the scandal of the cross by showing them the great benefit that would redound by his death unto all mankind. And this by a solemnitude taken from grain. Except a corn of wheat fall unto the ground and die, it abideth alone. That is, as corn unsown, lodged in the barn or laid up in the chamber, never multiplies or increases, but sow it in the field and bury it in the earth, and it multiplies and increases, and brings forth a plentiful crop. So if Jesus had not died, he had remained what he was, the eternal Son of God, but he had no church in the world. Whereas his death and suffering made him fructify, that brought a plentiful increase of exaltation to himself and salvation to his people. Observe 3. How plainly our Savior dealt with his followers. He did not deceive them with a vain hope and expectation of temporal happiness, but tells them plainly, that all that will be his disciples must prepare for suffering, and not think their temporal life too dear to lay down for him when he calls them to it, this being the surest way to secure unto themselves life everlasting. He that loveth his life shall lose it, but he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Learn hence that the surest way to attain eternal life is cheerfully to lay down our temporal life when the glory of Christ and the honor of religion require it at our hand. Verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Burkett notes, that is, if any man assumes the title and enters into the sacred engagement of being Christ's servant, Let his conversation correspond with his profession, and let him be willing to follow me in the thorny path of affliction and suffering, from this assurance, that all his grievous suffering shall end in eternal joys. Where I am, there shall my servant be, and him will my father honor. Learn hence, one, that all that will be Christ's servants must be his followers. They must obey his doctrine and imitate his example. Two, that Christ's servants must not expect better usage at the hand of an unkind world than their master met with before them. Three, that such as serve Christ by following of him shall at death see him as he is, and be with him where he is. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. Four, that God will crown the fidelity and constancy of Christ's servants with the highest dignity and honor. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Verses 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
but for this cause I came unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I both glorified it and will glorify it again. Burkett notes, whilst our Savior was thus preaching of his own death and suffering, a natural horror of his approaching passion, though such as was without sin, seizes upon him, his Father giving him a taste of that wrath which he was to undergo upon the cross for our sins. Hereupon he betakes himself to prayer. Father, save me from this hour. This was the harmless inclination of his sinless nature, which abhorred lying under wrath and therefore prays against it. Yet, as it were, recalling himself, he submits to what his office, as our surety, required of him, and prays again unto his Father to dispose of him as may most and best conduce to the purposes of his glory. Father, glorify thy name. Learn thence, one, that mere trouble is no sin. Christ's soul was troubled. Christianity doth not make men senseless. Grace introduceth no social stupidity. Two, the fear of death especially when accompanied with an apprehensions of the wrath of God, is most perplexing and soul-amazing. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? 3. That no extremity of suffering ought to discourage us from laying claim to that relation which God stands in to us as Father. Our Savior in the midst of his distress calls God Father. Father, save me from this hour. 4. In the extremities of our suffering, we may be importunate, but must not be preemptory in our prayers. As Christ in his agony prayed more earnestly, so may we in ours, but always submissively. Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. 5. That our exemption from suffering may sometimes be inconsistent with the glory of God. Father, save me from this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Observe, lastly, the Father's answer to the Son's prayer. There came a voice from heaven, saying, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. That is, as God the Father had been already glorified in his Son's life, doctrine, and miracles, so he would further glorify himself in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And also by the mission of the Holy Ghost and the preaching of the gospel for the conversion of the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. Learn hence that the whole work of Christ, from the lowest degree of his humiliation to the highest degree of his exaltation, was a glorifying of his Father. He glorified his Father by the doctrines which he taught. He glorified his Father by the miracles which he wrought, by the unspotted innocency of his life, by his unparalleled suffering at his death, by his victorious resurrection from the grave, and by his triumphant ascension into heaven. Verses 29 through 33. The people, therefore, that had stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the way of God in speaking to his people, by a voice in thunder, for the greater declaration of his glory and majesty. Thunderings and lightnings usually attended the voice of God, even in consolations, and when he spake comfortably to his own servants. Oh, how dreadful and terrible then must the voice of God be to his enemies, 
when he shall come in flaming fire to render vengeance to them. If there was such dread and terror, such thundering and lightnings at the giving of the law, Lord, what will there be another day when thou comest to punish the violation of that law? Observe, too, the end why God the Father now spake with an audible voice to Christ his Son. It was for his consolation and the people's confirmation. His soul being trouble, he stood in need as mediator of comfort from his Father, and the people had here a farther and fuller confirmation of his being the promised and true Messiah, so that they might believe in him. This voice came not because of me. That is, not only or chiefly because of me, but to confirm your faith in the belief of this great truth, that I am the Son of God, by whom the Father hath glorified, and will further glorify his name. Observe 3. Our Savior declares a double effect and fruit of his death and passion, the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. That is, my death shall be the devil's overthrow, will bring down sin, and deliver the world from the tyranny and dominion of sin and Satan. Thence learn, one, that Satan is the prince and ruler of all those who live in sin, not a prince by legal right, but by tyrannical usurpation. Two, that this usurper, Satan, will not quit his possession unless he be cast out. Three, that Christ by his death has cast out Satan, dethroned him, deprived him of his tyrannical usurpation. Now is the prince of this world cast out. That is, I will shortly by my death deliver the world from the slavery of sin and dominion of Satan, and particularly from that idolatry which the greatest part of the world were then in slavery under. The second effect and fruit of Christ's death, which is here declared, is his drawing all men unto him. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men into me. There is a twofold lifting up of Christ. The first, ignominious, when he was hung upon the cross. The second, glorious, in the preaching of the gospel. By this he draws all men into him. That is, by the preaching of the gospel, he calls and invites all persons to himself. He offers the benefits of his death to all and gathers a church to himself out of the Gentile as well as the Jewish world. Learn one, that all persons are naturally unwilling to come to Christ. They must be drawn. Two, that Christ meritoriously by his death and instrumentally by his preaching of the gospel draws sinners unto himself. Three, that is not a few or a small number, but a very great number, consisting both of Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, persons of all nations, ages, sexes, and conditions, whom Christ draweth. Not that all are effectively drawn to Christ, so as savingly to believe in him, but by the preaching of the gospel they are called and invited to him, and the benefits of his death are offered to them. Thus Christ, being lifted up upon his cross and on the pole of his gospel, draws all men unto him. That is, doth what is sufficient to prevail with all men to believe on him, and to render those that do not so everlastingly inexcusable. Verses 34 through 36. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. Burkett notes, Observe here, 
1. The objection which the Jews made against our Savior's being the true Messiah. Their argument runs thus. It was foretold under the law that Christ, or the Messiah, abideth forever. But thou sayest, the Son of Man must be lifted up and die. How then can thou be the promised Messiah? The answer is, in a state of humiliation unto death he was lifted up, but in a state of exaltation he abideth forever. Learn hence that Christ's lifting up by death and his abiding forever do very well consist together, for both are true of him, the one in a state of humiliation, the other in a state of exaltation. Observe, too, our Savior returns no answer to their cavailing objection, nor doth he undertake to demonstrate how his suffering and his abiding forever are consistent, but gives them intimations that he was the light of the world, and advises them, whilst they had the light with them, to prize it highly and improve it faithfully. Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk whilst you have light, lest darkness come upon you. Note here, 1. A choice and singular privilege enjoyed. The light is with you. A personal light, Christ. A doctrinal light, the gospel. Both these brought with them a light of knowledge, answering our darkness of ignorance. A light of grace and holiness, answering our darkness of sin, which we had brought upon ourselves. And a light of joy and comfort, answering the darkness of misery and horror, which we lay under by reason of our guilt. Note, too, the time of enjoying this privilege limited. Yet a little while is the light with you. The time of the people's enjoying the light and liberty of the gospel is a limited time. It is a short time. Note, three, a duty enjoined by Christ, answerable to the privilege enjoyed by us. Walk whilst you have the light. A uniform and consistent course of holy walking, according to the rule of the gospel, is the indispensable duty and obligation of all those that enjoy the light and liberty of the gospel. Namely, to walk according to the precepts and commands of the gospel, answerable to the privileges and prerogatives of the gospel, answerable to the help and supplies of grace which the gospel affords, and answerable to the glorious hope and expectation which the gospel raises us unto. Note 4. A danger threatened to the neglectors of this duty, lest darkness come upon you, namely a darkness of ignorance and judicial blindness, a darkness of error and seduction, a darkness of horror and despair, and the fatal and final darkness of death and hell. For all condemners of gospel light, there is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, where sin and torment run parallel, where torment makes them sin, and their sin feeds their torment. Verses 37 through 41. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Burkett notes, The place where our evangelist alludes to is Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. From whence a clear argument for Christ's divinity may be thus drawn. He whom Isaiah saw, environed with seraphim, and praised as most holy by them, was the true and eternal God, for such acclamations belong to none but the great Jehovah, God blessed forevermore.
But, says St. John, it was the glory of Christ that Isaiah saw in his vision. It was Christ whom he called, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Therefore, Christ is undoubtedly God, blessed forevermore. For the evangelist was not speaking of the Father, but the Son, and cites these words out of Isaiah, so that it was the glory of the second person that Isaiah saw and spake of, if the words of the evangelist be of any credit. Besides, the angels are too holy to give acclamations belonging to God to any but him that is God. Observe here, one, the astonishing infidelity and unbelief of the Jews who heard our Savior's doctrine and were eyewitnesses of his miracles. Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Let not the faithful ministers of Christ be discouraged or overmuch dejected at their want of success in dispensing of the gospel when they observe and consider the small success of our Savior's own ministry in the hearts and lives of his hearers. Yea, though his ministry was accompanied with miracles, and though his miracles were many in number, mighty in nature, clear and obvious to sense, being wrought before their eyes, yet his ministry succeeded not, and his miracles prevailed not. Lord, what little success has the offer of Christ in the gospel met with, from the first original tender to this day? Obstinate infidelity and cursed hypocrisy draw more souls to hell than all the devils in hell. Observe, too, how the present infidelity of these unbelieving Jews was long before foretold and prophesied of by the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 53, 1. Lord, who hath believed our report? That is, our preaching. Where note that Isaiah's complaint of the small success of his preaching was a prophecy and prediction of the like success that Christ and his ministers should have under the gospel. Learn hence that the gospel in all ages has met with more that have rejected it by unbelief than have savingly entertained it by faith. Isaiah complained before Christ and his apostles and ministers in every age since that few have believed their reports. Observe 3. That though the present unbelief of the obstinate Jews was long foretold by the prophets of God, Yet the prophet's prediction was no cause of their unbelief, or that which laid them under an impossibility of believing. But the fault lay in their own obstinate will, with respect to which, by the judgment of God, they were blinded and hardened for their contempt of Christ, the promised Messiah. When men close their eyes willfully and say they will not see, it is just with God to close their eyes judicially and say they shall not see. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, etc. Learn hence that the infidelity of the people is to be resolved into the perverseness of their own wills and the evil dispositions of their own hearts, not to any judicial blindness or obduration wrought by God upon them attendant to their own sin. God's act of hardening was consequential upon their sinning. Verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisee they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Burkett notes, observe here, one, that though the generality of the Jews were thus hardened under Christ's ministry and miracles, yet there were some, and those of the chief rank, even rulers, that did believe on him, that is, they were under strong and powerful convictions that he was the true and expected Messiah. Even in times and places where obstinacy and infidelity most prevail, 
the ministry of the word shall not be altogether without its fruit. Christ here had some, and those of the rulers too, who believed on him, when others under the same word were hardened. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. Observe, too, that though many of the chief rulers had a secret belief or an inward persuasion that Christ was the promised and expected Messiah, yet it was not sufficient to make them openly own, confess, and avow him to be such, for fear of excommunication from the Pharisees. They did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Slavish fear of men and suffering by them has hindered many from believing on Christ and kept more from an open owning and confessing of him. Because of the Pharisee, they did not confess him. Observe 3. As the fear of suffering on the one hand, so the love of reputation on the other kept them from owning and confessing Jesus to be the Christ. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That is, they valued honor and applause from men more than God's honoring and approving them. There is no greater snare to draw persons from their duty than inordinate love and affection of their own credit and reputation. Oh, how often is the applause and commendation of men preferred before the testimony and approbation of God. Here was their snare. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Verses 44 through 50. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Burkett notes, in these verses we have our blessed Savior's farewell sermon to the Jews concerning his person, office, and doctrine. As touching his person, he acquaints them with his divine nature, his oneness and equality with the Father, and accordingly challenges not only the assent, but also the obedience and adoration of their faith. Jesus cried, saying, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. That is, he that believeth on me, doth not believe on a mere man, but on him that is truly and really God, as well as man. And therefore, he being true God, one in essence and equal in power and glory with the Father, their believing in him was believing in God the Father that sent him. Observe, too, the argument which our Savior uses to prove that believers in Christ do believe in the Father. He that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. That is, he that seeth me spiritually and by faith, seeth my Father to be one with me in essence, though not in person. And he that seeth me in my miraculous works which I do, seeth him also that sent me, by whom I do these mighty works. Learn hence that we do not see Christ aright with the eye of our faith, unless we see him and believe him to be truly and really God, one with and equal to the Father. He that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Learn, too, that the Father is not to be seen but in the Son. Nor can believers know what the Father is but in seeing what the Son is. And what they see the Son to be, 
that the Father is in him. For he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. Observe 3. The dreadful judgment which Christ denounces against all unbelievers and such as reject him by rejecting of his gospel. For though at Christ's first coming, his errand was not to judge the world, but to save the world, that is, to offer the tender of salvation to lost sinners. Yet at his second coming, he would judge them at the last day, when the word preached to them and rejected by them will give a judicial testimony against them. Learn hence, 1. That Christ and his doctrine are inseparable. To receive his doctrine is to receive him, and to reject his doctrine is to reject him. 2. That such rejectors of Christ and the doctrine of the gospel shall not escape the judgment of Christ at the great day. 3. That at the great day, were there no other witnesses against the rejectors of Christ and his gospel, but the word preached, yet that alone will be sufficient, both for their conviction and condemnation. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him at the last day. The word is now the rule of living, and it shall hereafter be the rule of judging. Now it is the rule by which we must live to Christ. Then it shall be the rule by which we shall be judged of Christ. Observe 4. The argument and reason which our Savior produces to prove that the word of God and the doctrine of the gospel, slighted and rejected, should condemn sinners at the great day, namely, from the divine authority of his doctrine. For albeit his doctrine was his own, as he was true God, yet as man and as mediator, it was not his own, but the Father's which sent him. So that his word and doctrine being divine, and the Father's as well as his, for he did not speak of himself, that is, of himself alone without the Father, it is sufficient to judge and condemn all the rejectors and despisers of it. Learn thence, one, that though the doctrine of the gospel be Christ's own, as he is truly and really God, yet it was not his own as mere man exclusive of the Father, who is one God with him, and who gave him a commission and instruction as mediator to preach and publish the glad tidings of the gospel. For, says he, I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me gave me a commandment. Two, that the doctrine which Christ delivered by command from the Father doth point out the way to eternal life and will bring lost sinners thereunto, if they sincerely believe it and obey it. I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Three, that therefore sinners who reject the doctrine of Christ contained in the gospel do highly dishonor, offend, and affront both the Father and the Son, and bring upon themselves a just and righteous judgment, and expose themselves to unutterable and inevitable condemnation. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day.